welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Church Healing and Reconciliation Projects Beginning in the 1990s, the four settlement agreement churches began allocating specific funds for community-based healing and reconciliation projects. This work continued under the terms of the settlement agreement. Each of the defendant churches agreed to provide and manage funds specifically dedicated to healing and reconciliation. All the churches established committees, including Aboriginal representatives, to review and approve projects. In broad terms, the reconciliation projects funded by the settlement agreement churches have had three primary purposes. One, healing. The Toronto Urban Native Ministry, funded by Anglican, United, and Roman Catholic churches, reaches out to Aboriginal people on the street, in hospitals, in jails, shelters, and hostels. The ministry works with all Aboriginal people who are socially marginalized and impoverished, including survivors and intergenerational family members who have been impacted by residential schools. Anna Maywigumming Kenora Fellowship Centre, with funds from the Presbyterian Church in Canada, developed a step-up, Tools for the Soul, in partnership with local Aboriginal organizations. Under the program, a series of 10 teaching events led by Aboriginal elders, teachers, and professionals were held to support survivors and family members on their healing journey, featuring education about culture and tradition with the goal of fostering reconciliation. 2. Language and Culture Revitalization The Language Immersion Canoe Course in Tofino, British Columbia, funded by the United Church, focused on reconnecting Aboriginal youth to their homelands and cultures. For one month, young Aboriginal people from Vancouver Island, including the community of Ihausat, where the United Church operated a school, were taken to a remote and ancient Hesquiat village site to learn the Hesquia language through the art of canoe-making. The four-season cultural camps of the Serpent River First Nation in Ontario, funded by the Anglican Church, used traditional practices of harvesting, food storage, storytelling, and related ceremonies to promote language and culture. The Anglicans also supported a wilderness retreat for young people at the Nabinimic First Nation at Summer Beaver, Ontario. It taught traditional life ways while instilling a sense of self-confidence in the youth as they successfully completed the activities in the camp. 3. Education and Relationship Building The Anglican and Roman Catholic churches still have relatively large numbers of Aboriginal members, so many of their initiatives focused on bringing their own Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal members together. The Anglican Church has worked to help build understanding and counter-stereotypes among its members through anti-racism training. The Roman Catholic entities were among the core funders of the Returning to Spirit, Residential School Healing and Reconciliation Program. 
The program brings Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal participants together to gain new insights into the residential school experience and develop new communication and relationship-building skills. The settlement agreement churches bear a special responsibility to continue to support the long-term healing needs of survivors, their families, and communities, who are still struggling with a range of health, social, and economic impacts. The closure of the National Aboriginal Healing Foundation in 2014, when government funding ended, has left a significant gap in funding for community-based healing projects at the very time that healing for many individuals and communities is still just beginning. The churches must also continue to educate their own congregations and facilitate dialogue between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. Much has been accomplished through the healing and reconciliation projects of the settlement agreement churches, but more remains to be done. Call to Action Number 61 We call upon church parties to the settlement agreement in collaboration with survivors and representatives of Aboriginal organizations to establish permanent funding to Aboriginal people for 1. Community-controlled healing and reconciliation projects 2. Community-controlled culture and language revitalization projects 3. Community-controlled education and relationship building projects and 4. Regional dialogues for Indigenous and spiritual leaders and to youth to discuss Indigenous spirituality, self-determination, and reconciliation. Education for Reconciliation Much of the current state of troubled relations between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians is attributable to educational institutions and what they have taught or failed to teach over many generations. Despite that history, or perhaps more correctly, because of its potential, the Commission believes that education is also the key to reconciliation. Educating Canadians for reconciliation involves not only schools and post-secondary institutions, but also dialogue forums and public history institutions, such as museums and archives. Education must remedy the gaps in historical knowledge that perpetuate ignorance and racism. But education for reconciliation must do even more. Survivors told us that Canadians must learn about the history and legacy of residential schools in ways that change both minds and hearts. At the Manitoba National Event in Winnipeg, Alan Sutherland said, quote, There are still a lot of emotions that are unresolved. People need to tell their stories. We need the ability to move forward together, but you have to understand how it all began, starting with Christopher Columbus, from Christianization, then colonization, and then assimilation. If we put our minds and hearts to it, we can change the status quo, end quote. At the Commission's community hearing in Thunder Bay, Ontario in 2010, Esther Lachanette Diabo said, quote, I'm doing this interview in hope that we could use this as an educational tool to educate our youth about what happened. Maybe one day the Ministry of Education can work with the TRC and develop some kind of curriculum for Native Studies, Indigenous Learning, so that not only Aboriginal people can understand, you know, what we had to go through, the experiences of all the Anishinaabe people that attended, but for the Canadian people as well to understand that the residential schools did happen, and through this sharing, they can understand and hear stories from survivors like me, end quote. In Lethbridge, Alberta, in 2013, Charlotte Martin said, quote, I would like to see actions taken as a result of the findings of this commission. I would like to see the history of the residential school system be part of the school curriculum across Canada. I want my grandchildren and the future generations of our society to know the whole truth behind Canada's residential school policy and how it destroyed generations of our people. It is my hope that by sharing the truth, 
that will help the public gain a better understanding of the struggles we face as First Nations. End quote. Non-Aboriginal Canadians hear about the problems faced by Aboriginal communities, but they have almost no idea how those problems developed. There is little understanding of how the federal government contributed to that reality through residential schools and the policies and laws in place during their existence. Our education system, through omission or commission, has failed to teach this. It bears a large share of the responsibility for the current state of affairs. It became clear over the course of the commission's work that most adult Canadians have been taught little or nothing about the residential schools. More typically, they were taught that the history of Canada began when the first European explorers set foot in the New World. Nation-building has been the main theme of Canada's history curricula for a long time, and Aboriginal peoples have been portrayed as bystanders, if not obstacles, to that enterprise. Prior to 1970, school textbooks across the country depicted Aboriginal peoples as being either savage warriors or onlookers who were irrelevant to the more important history of Canada the story of European settlement. Beginning in the 1980s, the history of Aboriginal people was sometimes cast in a more positive light, but the poverty and social dysfunction in Aboriginal communities were emphasized without any historical context to help students understand how or why these happened. This has left most Canadians with the view that Aboriginal people were and are to blame for situations in which they find themselves, as though there were no external causes. Aboriginal peoples have therefore been characterized as a social and economic problem that must be solved. By the 1990s, textbooks emphasized the role of Aboriginal peoples as protesters, advocating for rights. Most Canadians failed to understand or appreciate the significance of these rights, given the overriding perspective of Aboriginal assimilation in Canada's education system. Although textbooks have become more inclusive of Aboriginal perspectives over the past three decades, the role of Aboriginal people in Canadian history during much of the 20th century remains invisible. Students learn something about Aboriginal peoples prior to contact and during the exploration, fur trade, and settlement periods. They learn about Métis resistance in the 1880s and the signing of the treaties. Then, Aboriginal peoples virtually disappear until the 1960s and 1970s, when they resurface as political and social justice advocates. The defining period in between remains largely unmentioned, so much of the story of Aboriginal peoples, as seen through their own eyes, is still missing from Canadian history. In the Commission's view, all students, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, need to learn that the history of this country did not begin with the arrival of Jacques Cartier on the banks of the St. Lawrence River. They need to learn about the Indigenous nations the Europeans met, about their rich linguistic and cultural heritage, about what they felt and thought as they dealt with such historic figures as Champlain, La Verendrye, and the representatives of the Hudson's Bay Company. Canadians need to learn why Indigenous nations negotiated the treaties and to understand that they negotiated with integrity and good faith. They need to learn about why Aboriginal leaders and elders still fight so hard to defend those treaties, what these agreements represent to them, and why they have been ignored by European settlers or governments. They need to learn about what it means to have inherent rights, what those are for Aboriginal peoples, and what the settler government's political and legal obligations are in those areas where treaties were never negotiated. They need to learn why so many of these issues are ongoing. They need to learn about the doctrine of discovery, the politically and socially accepted basis for presumptive European claims to the land and riches of this country, and to understand that this same doctrine is now being repudiated around the world, 
most recently by the United Nations and the World Council of Churches. Survivors have also said that knowing about these things is not enough. Our public education system also needs to influence behavior by undertaking to teach our children, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, how to speak respectfully to and about each other in the future. Reconciliation is all about respect. The Commission's 2012 interim report made three recommendations directed at provincial and territorial governments. Recommendation 4. The Commission recommends that each provincial and territorial government undertake a review of the curriculum materials currently used in public schools to assess what, if anything, they teach about residential schools. Recommendation 5. The Commission recommends that the provincial and territorial departments of education work in concert with the Commission to develop age-appropriate educational materials about residential schools for use in public schools. Recommendation 6. The Commission recommends that each provincial and territorial government work with the Commission to develop public education campaigns to inform the general public about the history and impact of residential schools in their respective jurisdictions. At various times, the Commission met with provincial and territorial education ministers from across Canada. In July 2014, the Council of Ministers of Education Canada, CMEC, gave us an update on the status of curriculum development commitments across the country. The Commission was encouraged to see that progress has been made. We note, however, that not all provinces and territories have yet made curriculum about residential schools mandatory, and not all courses cover the subject in depth. The Northwest Territories in Nunavut have taken a leadership role in developing and implementing mandatory curriculum about residential schools for all high school students, in engaging survivors directly in the development of new materials, and in ensuring that teachers receive appropriate training and support, including direct dialogues with survivors. At the time of this writing, Yukon had begun the process of adopting the Northwest Territories and Nunavut materials for mandatory use in its territory. Among the provinces, Alberta publicly declared that it was launching its own initiative to develop mandatory curriculum on the treaties and residential schools for all students. These education initiatives are significant, but it will be essential to ensure that momentum is not lost in the years following the end of the Commission's mandate. To be successful over the long term, this and similar initiatives will require substantive and sustained support from provincial and territorial governments, educators, and local school districts. An ongoing commitment from ministers of education throughout the country is critical. The Commission notes that on July 9, 2014, the CMEC announced that education ministers quote, agreed to additional pan-Canadian work in Aboriginal education to take place over the next two years, which will focus on four key directional ideas, support for Aboriginal students interested in pursuing teaching as a career, development of learning resources on Canadian history and the legacy of Indian residential schools that could be used by teacher training programs, sharing of promising practices in Aboriginal education, and ongoing promotion of learning about Indian residential schools in K-12 education systems, end quote. In regions where curriculum and teacher training on residential schools have been introduced, it will be necessary to build on these early successes and evaluate progress on an ongoing basis. Where education about residential schools is minimal, provincial and territorial governments can benefit from the lessons learned in jurisdictions that have made this material a mandatory requirement. The Commission notes that throughout the residential school era, Catholic and Protestant religious schools taught students only about their own religions. Students were ill-prepared to understand or respect other religions or spiritual perspectives, including those of Aboriginal peoples. 
In our view, no religious school receiving public funding should be allowed to teach one religion to the complete exclusion of all other religions. This is consistent with the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in SL and Commission Scolier du Chien in 2012. At issue was whether Quebec's Mandatory Ethics and Religious Cultures program, which was introduced in 2008 to replace Catholic and Protestant programs of religious and moral instruction with a comparative religious course taught from neutral and objective perspective, violated charter rights of Catholic parents and children to be taught only Catholic religious beliefs. However, the court ruled, quote, exposing children to a comprehensive presentation of various religions without forcing children to join them does not constitute an indoctrination of students that would infringe on the freedom of religion. Furthermore, the early exposure of children to realities that differ from those in their immediate family environment is a fact of life in society. The suggestion that exposing children to a variety of religious facts in itself infringes on religious freedom or that of their parents amounts to a rejection of the multicultural reality of Canadian society and ignores the Quebec government's obligations with regard to public education, end quote. The Commission believes that religious diversity courses must be mandatory in all provinces and territories. Any religious school receiving public funding must be required to teach at least one course on comparative religious studies, which must include a segment on Aboriginal spiritual beliefs and practices. Call to Action Number 62 We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments in consultation and collaboration with survivors, Aboriginal peoples, and educators to 1. Make age-appropriate curriculum on residential schools, treaties, and Aboriginal peoples' historical and contemporary contributions to Canada, a mandatory evaluation requirement for kindergarten to grade 12 students. 2. Provide the necessary funding to post-secondary institutions to educate teachers on how to integrate Indigenous knowledge and teaching methods into classrooms. 3. Provide the necessary funding to Aboriginal schools to utilize Indigenous knowledge and teaching methods in classrooms. 4. Establish senior-level positions in government at the assistant deputy minister level or higher dedicated to Aboriginal content in education. Number 63. We call upon the Council of Ministers of Education Canada to maintain an annual commitment to Aboriginal educational issues, including 1. Developing and implementing kindergarten to grade 12 curriculum and learning resources on Aboriginal peoples in Canadian history and the history and legacy of residential schools. 2. Sharing information and best practices on teaching curriculum related to residential schools and Aboriginal history. 3. Building student capacity for intercultural understanding, empathy, and mutual respect. And 4. Identifying teacher training needs relating to the above. Number 64. We call upon all levels of government that provide public funds to denominational schools to require such schools to provide an education on comparative religious studies, which must include a segment on Aboriginal spiritual beliefs and practices developed in collaboration with Aboriginal elders. Transforming the Education System Creating Respectful Learning Environments The Commission believes that to be an effective force for reconciliation, curriculum about residential schools must be part of a broader history education that integrates First Nations, Inuit, and Métis voices, perspectives, and experiences, and builds common ground between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. The education system itself must be transformed into one that rejects the racism embedded in colonial systems of education and treats Aboriginal and Euro-Canadian knowledge systems with equal respect. This is consistent with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which articulates the state's responsibility with regard to public education and the promotion of respectful relationships between citizens as follows. 
Article 15.1. Indigenous people have the right to the dignity and diversity of their cultures, traditions, histories, and aspirations, which shall be appropriately reflected in education and public information. Article 15.2. States shall take effective measures, in consultation and cooperation with the Indigenous people concerned, to combat prejudice and eliminate discrimination, and to promote tolerance, understanding, and good relations among Indigenous people and all other segments of society. Fully implementing this national education framework will take many years, but will ensure that Aboriginal children and youth see themselves and their cultures, languages, and histories respectfully reflected in the classroom. Non-Aboriginal learners will benefit as well. Taught in this way, all students, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, gain historical knowledge while also developing respect and empathy for each other. Both elements will be vital to supporting reconciliation in the coming years. Developing respect for and understanding of the situation of others is an important but often ignored part of the reconciliation process. Survivors' testimonies compelled those who listened to think deeply about what justice really means in the face of mass human rights violations. Teaching and learning about the residential schools are difficult for educators and students alike. They can bring up feelings of anger, grief, shame, guilt, and denial but they can also shift understanding and alter worldviews. Education for reconciliation requires not only age-appropriate curriculum, but also ensuring that teachers have the necessary skills, supports, and resources to teach Canadian students about the residential school system in a manner that fosters constructive dialogue and mutual respect. Educating the heart as well as the mind helps young people to become critical thinkers who are also engaged, compassionate citizens. At the Alberta National Event, a youth delegation from Feathers of Hope, a project sponsored by Ontario's Provincial Advocate for Children and Youth, offered an expression of reconciliation. Samantha Crow said, quote, Feathers of Hope began as a First Nations youth forum, but it quickly became a movement of hope, healing, and positive change within Northern Ontario's First Nations communities. He spoke passionately about wanting to learn about the past and said that First Nations and non-First Nations people alike need to understand our history and the impacts it still has on everything around us. First Nations and non-First Nations people need to understand how colonization, racism, that residential schools still continue to negatively impact the quality of life in our communities. Everyone, especially the young people, need to learn of Canada's history, of our past, to truly try and understand our present. This needs to be taught in school, but also needs to be heard firsthand from our family, our friends, and our other community members. This will begin the journey of healing together as a family or as a community because we can no longer live with a silence that hides our pain. So while youth want to know of their past, they are ready to move forward. They understand they need positive change, but they don't want to do this alone. We all need to come together so we can share, so we can grow, and then we can uplift one another because that's what reconciliation is about, end quote. Learning about the residential school history is crucial to reconciliation but can be effective only if Canadians also learn from this history, in terms of repairing broken trust, strengthening a sense of civic responsibility, and spurring remedial and constructive action. In a digital world, where students have ready access to a barrage of information concerning treaties, Aboriginal rights, or historical wrongs such as residential schools, they must know how to assess the credibility of these sources for themselves. As active citizens, they must be able to engage in debates on these issues, armed with real knowledge and deepened understanding about the past. Understanding the ethical dimension of history is especially important. 
students must be able to make ethical judgments about the actions of their ancestors, while recognizing that the moral sensibilities of the past may be quite different from their own in present times. They must be able to make informed decisions about what responsibility today's society has to address historical injustices. This will ensure that tomorrow's citizens are both knowledgeable and caring about injustices of the past as these relate to their own futures. Gathering New Knowledge Research on Reconciliation For reconciliation to thrive in the coming years, it will also be necessary for federal, provincial, and territorial governments, universities, and funding agencies to invest in and support new research on reconciliation. Over the course of the Commission's work, a wide range of research projects across the country have examined the meaning, concepts, and practices of reconciliation. Yet, there remains much to learn about the circumstances and conditions in which reconciliation either fails or flourishes. Equally important, there are rich insights into healing and reconciliation that emerge from the research process itself. Two research projects sponsored by the Commission illustrate this point. Through a TRC-sponsored project at the Centre for Youth and Society at the University of Victoria, seven Aboriginal youth researchers embarked on a digital storytelling project, Residential School Resistance Narratives, Strategies and Significance for Indigenous Youth. The project enabled youth researchers to learn about the critical role that resistance and resilience played in the residential schools and beyond, but also allowed them to reflect on their own identities and roles within their families and communities. One youth researcher said that what started as a research job turned into a personal hunt for knowledge of my own family's history with residential schools. Others noted the importance of respecting and incorporating ceremony and protocols in their digital storytelling projects. Asman Tuan, the project coordinator, reported that the group learned the importance of, quote, knowing that when speaking to a survivor, you have to hear their past before you can hear their understanding of resistance. This project allowed the group to have a learning process that weaves together traditional Indigenous and Western knowledge to build our stories of resistance. This research project has ignited a fire that shows in each digital story. The passion of resistance that validates the survivors and resiliency of First Nations people and communities provides hope for healing and reconciliation over the next seven generations, end quote. In 2012, a digital storytelling project was undertaken by Aboriginal women at the Prairie Women's Health Center of Excellence. Nita Pawewinanan, Ongoing Effects of Residential Schools on Aboriginal Women, Towards Intergenerational Reconciliation. Using ceremony and protocols throughout the project, the first workshop began with a pipe ceremony followed by a sharing circle in which participants talked about their lives and the group discussed their individual and collective needs for support. They later moved on to making videos of their individual stories, which were screened in March 2012 at the University of Winnipeg. One of the participants, Lorena Fontaine, said, quote, Reconciliation is about stories and our ability to tell stories. I think the intellectual part of ourselves wants to start looking for words to define reconciliation. And then there is the heart knowledge that comes from our life experiences. It's challenging to connect the two and relate it to reconciliation. Without even thinking of the term reconciliation, I'm reminded about the power of story. People who watched the videos said that when they saw the faces of Aboriginal women and heard their voices in the videos, they understood assimilation in a different way. They felt the impact of assimilation. It's far more powerful to have Aboriginal peoples talk about the impact of assimilation and hope for reconciliation than having words written down in a report. End quote. Research is vital to reconciliation. It provides insights and practical examples of why and how educating Canadians about the diverse concepts, 
principles, and practices of reconciliation contributes to healing and transformative social change. The benefits of research extend beyond addressing the legacy of residential schools. Research on the reconciliation process can inform how Canadian society can mitigate intercultural conflicts, strengthen civic trust, and build social capacity and practical skills for long-term reconciliation. First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples have an especially strong contribution to make to this work. Research partnerships between universities and communities or organizations are fruitful collaborations and can provide the necessary structure to document, analyze, and report research findings on reconciliation to a broader audience. Call to Action, number 65. We call upon the federal government through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and in collaboration with Aboriginal peoples, host secondary institutions and educators, and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation as its partner institutions, to establish a national research program with multi-year funding to advance understanding of reconciliation. TRC Public Education Forums Education Days and Youth Dialogues Education for reconciliation must happen not only in formal education settings, such as elementary and secondary schools and post-secondary institutions, but in more informal places. One of the ways that the Commission fulfilled its public education mandate was through forums such as National Event Education Days and Youth Dialogues. The Commission believes that establishing a strong foundation for reconciliation depends on the achievement of individual self-respect and mutual respect between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. While this is true for adults, it is particularly urgent with regard to young people. They are the lifeblood of reconciliation into the future. At the Saskatchewan National Event, grade 8 student Brooklyn Ray, who attended the Education Day, said, quote, I think it's really important for youth to voice their opinions, to not only prove to themselves that they can, that their voice is important, but to prove to adults that they can have a voice and that they can have a strong opinion that is important to the world, end quote. Elder Barney Williams, a member of the TRC Survivor Committee and one of the panelists at the Education Day Youth Dialogue, said, quote, I think more and more people are realizing that the engagement of youth is crucial. For me as a survivor, I'm really impressed with how much they knew. I was very impressed with the type of questions the audience asked. It tells me, as somebody who's carried this pain for over 68 years, that there is hope. Finally, there's hope on the horizon and it's coming from the right place. It's coming from the youth, end quote. The commission agrees. We believe that children and youth must have a strong voice in developing reconciliation policy programs and practices in the future. It is therefore vital to develop appropriate public education strategies to support the ongoing involvement of children and youth in age-appropriate reconciliation initiatives and projects at a community, regional, and national level. Through direct participation in the TRC's national events, Thousands of young people and their teachers across the country had the opportunity to learn about the residential schools and think about their own role and responsibility in reconciliation. The TRC's education days were designed specifically for elementary and high school students and their teachers. Young people had the opportunity to listen to and interact with elders and survivors. They attended interactive workshops where they learned about the residential school history, resilience, and healing through the arts painting, carving, storytelling, music, and film. They visited the learning place to walk through the Legacy of Hope Foundation display, 100 Years of Loss, and to see posters and archival photographs of the residential schools from their own region. 
education days were well attended. For example, at the British Columbia National Event in Vancouver, approximately 5,000 elementary and high school students from across the province spent the day at the national event. In advance of education day, teachers in each region were given orientation materials to help prepare their students and themselves. In total, close to 15,000 young people across the country have participated in such education days, most with the commitment to take what they learned and witnessed back to their home schools to share with thousands more of their fellow students. Over the course of the TRC's mandate, the Commission worked in partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice's Child and Youth Program to host a series of small retreats and workshops. Youth dialogues were also integrated into Education Day activities at national events. Their purpose was to engage youth in dialogue and to support their efforts to make their own submissions to the TRC. For example, in October 2010, the Commission co-sponsored an Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal youth retreat near Vancouver, British Columbia. Young people came together to learn about the residential schools, talk with elders, and share team-building activities. One young participant said that during the retreat, we learned more about each other and the past. It's really important because it actually teaches us the stories that we heard, it touched us, and inspired us to become better people. In June of 2011, Molly Tilden and Marissa Brown, two young women who attended this retreat, produced their own documentary video, Our Truth, the Youth's Perspective on Residential Schools. The production featured interviews with their classmates in Yellowknife about what they knew about residential schools. They presented the video at the Northern National Event in Inuvik, Northwest Territories. Virginie Ladish, director of the ICTJ's Children and Youth Program, summarized what the two young women found and the subsequent impact of the project. Quote, the answers are shocking. Some students had no knowledge or simply complete indifference. Those are largely the non-Aboriginal youth interviewed. Other students talk about the enduring impact they see in terms of high rates of alcoholism, suicide, and teenage pregnancies. So there's a huge disconnect in terms of how the young people view the relevance of this legacy and what knowledge they have of it. When that video was shared with people involved in designing the secondary school curriculum for the Northwest Territories in Nunavut, they could not believe that their youth had such reactions. So the curriculum on residential schools, which was previously barely addressed in the classroom, was revised to be a mandatory 25 hours of instruction, which Ms. Brown and Ms. Tilden's video is a critical component, end quote. In October of 2011, the TRC, ICTJ initiative, prepared and supported a group of Mi'kmaq youth reporters at the Halifax National Event. The interviewed survivors and documented the TRC event. At a follow-up retreat in the community, young reporters discussed their experiences and produced a documentary called Our Legacy, Our Hope. In 2012, the documentary was presented at the Youth Dialogue during the TRC's national event in Saskatchewan. Some of the youth also presented this documentary to international policymakers at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues in 2012. The Commission's interactions with youth indicated that young people care deeply about the past. They understand that knowing the whole story about Canada's history is relevant for today and crucial for their future. This was evident, for example, in an expression of reconciliation made to the TRC at the Alberta National Event on March 27, 2014, by a group of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal youth from the Centre for Global Education in Edmonton. One of the non-Aboriginal youth, Hanji Lu, told us about the project. First, the group, made up of youth from First Nations Reserves, 
the rural communities of High Prairie and Fort McLeod, and the city of Edmonton, spent a month studying and talking about residential schools and their shared history. They then held a virtual town hall where over 300 students talked about their vision for reconciliation. Emerald Blessy from Little River Cree Nation told us that youth believe that reconciliation is the way to reestablish lost trust and open doors to positive and productive communities. When we affirm every culture's pride in their heritage, healing can take place. Haley Greer-Stewart, representing the Kenai, Siksika, Sutina, and Stony First Nations, said that the youth believe that within our communities we need to teach and create awareness, cultural appreciation, as well as healing and restoration. If we introduce youth to the culture at a young age in our schools through curriculum and the practice of restorative justice, it will teach the younger generation to be proactive instead of reactive. Métis youth Shelley Lachlan said that, quote, the youth of Alberta believe that in order to move forward towards healing and reconciliation, it is important for action to be taken on a national and provincial level. First, we must reestablish trust between these two, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, collectives. And through the honoring, acknowledgement, and respect of all treaties and settlements, we believe this can be achieved, end quote. Youth forums and dialogue are a vital component of education for reconciliation. Nonprofit organizations can play a key role in providing ongoing opportunities for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal youth to participate in intercultural dialogue and work actively together to foster reconciliation. Call to Action, number 66. We call upon the federal government to establish multi-year funding for community-based youth organizations to deliver programs on reconciliation and establish a national network to share information and best practices. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com.